This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is uh, Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network and African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. It's Friday morning here in Hamilton, New York, Chile. I'm here with Dan Hicks. He's um, zoomed in with me from Oxford. He is curator and professor of contemporary archaeology, which is a thing I don't understand, actually, Dan. We can talk about that. (laughs) Professor of contemporary archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum, Oxford University. Today, we're going to talk about his terrific book entitled The Brutish, not the British, The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence, and Cultural Restitution. It's published in 2020 by Pluto Books. I found Dan's book to be a call to arms for Western museums to return everything it quote-unquote procured, or probably more correctly stole, from African locations. The claim for cultural restitution in his book is made through the case of the Benin Bronzes, artworks pillaged by the British in an 1897 naval attack, loot that was later gifted to the British Museum and is now on display for the world to see without much context. Well, I would say no more. Dan's book frames this cultural and material theft as a form of colonial violence, the product of weaponizing museums to tell a particular story about African past without reflections on the nature of Eurocentric museums, but also European pillage and plunder at the moment of colonial contact. Uh, Professor Dan Hicks, thanks for being here and welcome. Hello there. Hi. So it's um, absolutely wonderful to be here. Yeah, great. I'm so excited. So just to get us started, I gave a brief overview from my perspective. Could you summarize in your own words your argument and what the book is about? Yes, of course. So the book really comes from a certain positionality in that it is uh, written from my experience as a curator here in a world culture museum at the University of Oxford, the sort of thing that a lot of universities sort of actually have, and that also there are other more famous examples. You've already mentioned in London the uh, the BM, the British Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and in my experience here over the years, I guess I mean, my role as a curator is to keep things the same to some degree, to make sure that the moths aren't eating the textiles and that the metalwork isn't you know, rusting away. But some curators have experienced a sort of a mission creep. They've misunderstood their role to try to stop the world from changing around them. And here in Oxford, as the book says, the world really has sort of shifted around us in terms of what the colonial museum means today. And the book really makes 
I guess it makes an analogy with other things that have failed. It says that it says that the museum, that this sort of museum, you know, actually has failed, you know, and that uh, when things fail, they they sort of come into vision, into view. So you're uh, you're on your way to work and suddenly the car won't start. You know, at that moment, you see the car in a way that you wouldn't have seen it on any other morning. It's the same with the museum. It's the sense in which the visual technologies of these sort of 19th century institutions, you know, actually are not working anymore. And as the book says, in some cases, they're they're actually hurting people. So the book really sort of takes that as a point of the departure. And it talks about how to dismantle certain elements of the museum. And of course, actually, you know, returning objects when they're asked for back from the communities in Africa from whom they were looted is an essential sort of aspect, I argue, of the dismantling of the uh, the white infrastructure of these museums. That's so um, interesting. I love how you frame the book yourself, starting with positionality. Of course, we all have a positionality. And that's one thing that actually came up for me when I was reading your book. I should say I read it in just two sittings um, in the course of a weekend. I um, couldn't put it down. And my sense was, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, was that the book, you know, the British Museums was a labor of love for you. Um, it seems to be a book that is a, a, a product of a lifetime research. And you know, can you talk about that and tell us what brought you to museum studies and, you know, the project of yeah. curation, but also what led you to write this book at this time? Yeah, so it's a funny thing, isn't it? Uh, when a yeah. book sort of comes out of you. Um, I mean, this book, I, and I guess a lot of books are like this. I've been thinking about it for 20 years or more. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I wrote it incredibly quickly. Uh, so in terms of the actual writing of it, it was a little over six months, in fact, of just really intensive yeah, wow. sort of writing. Um, and I guess the reason how to put it. So, I mean, my in terms of my, you know, doctoral sort of, um, work and my, uh, you know, the work I did early on, you know, in my career, was related in the uh, the Bristol setting. So I taught at Bristol University in the southwest of England, which which is an important Atlantic city, is full of the remnants of empire, which is actually, you know, built into the architecture of the city, into the names of the institutions and so on. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was there uh, working at that time in the, 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 uh, in Eastern Caribbean, but looking at the historical relationships in between the southwest of England, you know, and the, uh, um, uh, and the Eastern Caribbean. Um, and, you know, so much of the public sort of dialogue. I mean, this was the first time round that we attempted to get rid of the Colston, um, you know, image that was, that was uh, removed. Uh, 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 you know, in the uh, the summer of uh, last year, there was a lot of, uh, you know, in the city, there was a lot of conversation about the fact that in, a, that in this sort of environment, empire isn't over. And then in, 20, in 2007, I came to Oxford from that, that role. And here in Oxford, I arrived in a, in a uh, city 
and in a museum where you simply couldn't have those conversations. It was impossible even really to talk about African collections. Um, and, you know, I guess I spent the first years here simply, you know, diving into the catalogue records, into the databases, understanding what was here, thinking of the museum as a, as a, as a sort of archaeological site or a big assemblage of objects from an excavation, which I wanted to try to to understand. And then, as the book says, the events of 2015 here in Oxford, uh, which included the Rosemus Fall movement, as well as the wider um, events in the USA around the, you know, from uh, around this, this, this sort of most recent layer in anti-racist activity, um, that really changed how I saw the museum. But it was then further than that. It was in the summer of 2019. And, you know, my time in uh, Nigeria as part of the Benin sort of conversation uh, group, dialogue uh, group, that just led me to think here is a high level international conversation in, bet in between the key museums and the key players in Nigeria. And yet the facts are not on the table. The facts are very little understood. Mm -hmm. So I came back from that meeting in July 2019 and I thought to myself, I just have to write this book really quickly. It has to be out. And um, between then and the February of 2020, I really, you know, locked myself away and wrote it. Uh, yeah. And here, here we are a year later. That's incredible. It, it, um, is this conversation that you had at Oxford and the way that you sort of framed yourself as you arrived at Oxford where this definition or this title of contemporary archaeology comes to be like that sounds to me to be like an oxymoron. Am I right about that? Yeah. So I was appointed as the university lecturer in the archaeology of the modern world. Hmm. Uh, and my research all right from when I was 18 and I left home and I worked for four years before going to university as, as an archaeologist. Right from the start, I was a gardens archaeologist. I worked on the restoration of historic gardens. So the post medieval, we were excavating the layers of the 18th and 19th century gardens. And I got to know a lot about the pottery of the 18th century and so on. And so all along it was about that sense that archaeology, you know, when does archaeology end? And then, uh, you know, at uh, university, I read archaeology and anthropology here in Oxford, um, which is very much an Americanist sort of model, actually. It's about archaeology as in terms of having a relationship uh, 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 sort of not with history as much as with anthropology. So the question always from for, 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 for me was, I mean, when does archaeology end and when does anthropology start? How do, you know, are there distinctions in between the, the sort of fields? So all of my work over 30 years really has been about moving back and forward in between what counts as contemporary, what counts as archaeology. And of course, the book explains that in this instance, uh, you know, actually the accusation that an object is archaeological can form a sort, you know, can actually, you know, constitute a, a sort of violence. Yeah. So there's a politics to how we, how we draw these lines. I mean, that leads me to the heart of the book. I love your answer because it, it is kind of a, an Americanist and colonial distinction. I appreciated that. Um, so tell us, what are the Benin bronzes, Benin bronzes, I guess, and how for you, 
and perhaps for the audiences that are discussing the bronzes themselves, are they emblematic of colonial violence or are the bronzes? So I think, I mean, my argument is that for now they are and they shouldn't be. So, right. you know, the bronzes, I mean, okay, so the category, the Benin, the bronzes can mean uh, different things and we should just be clear about what we're talking about. So the most famous image, if you think, think of a Benin, no, bronze, a lot of people, if they have a sense of what that means, might think of the plaques, which, which are on display at the British Museum. There were some in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. There were others around the world, which were these, uh, you know, you know they were on the, uh, the pillars of the, uh, the palaces of the Obers in this sort of sacred and royal uh, city. Um, and they tell in a unique iconography uh, and were made over, over a process of more than you know, 600 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, they tell the history of the royal court, the relationships with the Europeans, the life of, of each individual Ober, which is the word for the, uh, the, uh, the monarch of the Queen Mothers of the, uh, of, and also iconography of the, the, of the, of the wider, yeah, beliefs, um, as well, because these are really, these, these are religious objects as well. But then also the Benin bronzes also includes a whole load of other objects that are made of, uh, of various forms of alloyed copper. Right. Which includes Ober's heads, they include leopard sculptures, they include incredible figurative work, horn blowers and soldiers and so on. And then also the things that were taken in this attack uh, also include objects that are not, that, that are made of other materials. So most, most um, sort of obviously, I guess, are the ivory objects, the carved ivory tusks, which again were, were, Placed on onto onto altars in the heads of the obers, the brass heads, in order to tell the history of each individual obers' sort of life and his achievements and so on. But then also again, iconic images like the the ivory masks, the hip ornament masks, um, objects of woods, you know, coral work, an incredible range of artistic materials. So these were not known outside the city, really, hard, hardly known until this attack, because it was a sacred sort of mausoleum landscape, if you like. Each of the palaces over the generations had been abandoned and had been a, had been a focus for religious and sort of royal ritual. Um, so these altars were set up with sort of bells and with objects on the altars and various things were uh, forms of sort of memory and uh, forms of the sacred really were, 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 were sort of there going on there. So the attack of the British upon this site, this religious and uh, royal site, was sort of both an attack upon sovereignty, a removal you know, of a king with whom there had been all sorts of interactions for trade over the years, but now things were getting nastier, even nastier than they had been. They had been nasty for centuries um, because of the desire to set up, uh, you know, know, up and down the Niger River, the oil palm and the rubber, uh, um, if you like, economies. 
Um, so it's an attack upon sovereignty, but it's also attack up, an attack upon traditional religion. So it's both those things in order to remove this unhelpful sort of power, which was in the way of a corporate colonialism. We have to underline that this is a capitalist enterprise. These, these, these are, these are actually, you know, corporations which were doing all these attacks. It's such a great answer because it does clarify for me, um, your theory of taking one thing I found so compelling as someone who teaches in peace and conflict studies and publishes um, in politics and African studies more broadly is your theory of taking and mm. it's chronopolitics, what you call chronopolitics. And this leads me to, you know, your sort of observation on sovereignty. You say museums are to empire, what borders are to nation states. Is that what you mean yeah. by sovereignty? Like what do you mean by that sentence? To me, it sort of frames your work. Yeah. So the museum is to, you know, as the, as the border is to the nation state, so the museum is to empire. I guess I mean a, a range of things there. So a lot of the, of the, of uh, the most important work in, in uh, border studies, uh, around what is increasingly called sort of border work mm-hmm. does more than just historicize the idea of the nation state. We're all aware of it as a, as a sort of 19th century imposition. We're all aware somewhere in our heads that it has some relationship to empire. Um, and especially a second empire, as it's often called this, this, this sort of phase of empire in the late 19th century. Um, but border work also, and I, I learned this really in the earlier book I wrote, uh, and the exhibition that I co-curated about the Calais, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the experience of, of, of displaced, um, Africans, individuals from the Middle East, at the Calais um, sort of camp. The the and so there there there's a book called Lond, which I which I wrote with a colleague immediately before I wrote this book, where we learned that the border we learned from uh, uh, sort of border studies that the border isn't only the physical it it, it isn't only at the edge of the, of the nation state anymore. That border work includes the uh, the checking of sort of passports for employment or in our universities. It includes a whole host of activities that happen at a physical distance away from the actual border. So for museums, there is definitely some work. If the border is a 19th century invention that's there to to classify different kinds of, of sort of humans, that some people are more human than others. Some people are allowed in and some out. It's a classificatory device on a Victorian or, or a late 19th century model. Then it's interesting that it appears at the same moment as the, as the museum. And there's a lot of work on the museum as a classificatory device and maybe if i was talking to you 20 years ago i would have said that a world culture museum served to create a myth of the primitive of the so-called non-western to make a distinction in between the west and the rest and all of those incredibly problematic colonial sorts of uh, categories i probably wouldn't have said which i would say now that it's also at the same time as you as you walk around Certainly the Pitt Rivers or the British Museum and arguably also the Metropolitan Museum and others, 
you know, if you walk around and look at African art from different cultures, which has been highly, um, you know, removed from cult, uh, uh, from sort of context and from culture, you're this flaneur walking around in these interior spaces. That isn't only a production of the primitive or, or the racist lie of inferior cultures. It's also the racialization of the visitor historically as white. So here at the Pitt Rivers, this was a device. Hey, I mean, you're lucky. You're on the right side of the glass. You can walk from one, one's, sort of one location to another. All of these cultures are objectified and they're material, but you are on the living and the breathing side of the glass. So that's what I mean about the border work that happens in the museum. And it is not the border work of the nation so much as actually the border work of empire. So that sense, let's sort of push as far as we can that notion of the museum as a device of empire, an essential technology. Not so a lot of people say, well, museums and culture, that's sort of some other question from the real issues of sort of social history or restitution. That's yeah. a distraction from anti-racist activity in the present. But it turns out that culture actually really matters. And it really mattered for world history in these cases. So as long as these objects remain that are subject to claims for return, then all of their meanings are destroyed or, or sort of smothered by this secondary historicity, this history of taking. And so the work of of seeking to dismantle, you know, that sort of white infrastructure that I've mentioned is about a part of that work isn't just sort of rewriting the label to tell the history better. Right. It's about returning what is uh, demanded to be returned. And so those histories, the real histories, the significance of these objects to the royal courts and to people in Nigeria uh, here today, they can be taught and researched and understood in Nigeria, having actually removed all of the European and American agency that's in the hands of the of individuals like me that work in museums at the moment. So I think a lot of those people that work in museums mistake their 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 role as understanding those earlier contexts, whereas I introduced the notion of a Euro-pessimistic approach. And the Euro-pessimism is to say, well, actually, the main things right now that, that these objects index is they index violence. And we have to undo that through the work of understanding these histories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I love that answer because it leads me to a question that I had in my mind as I read, um, your book and anyone who picks it up will be duly rewarded the imagery and the archival material that you have is just fantastic and i'm wondering when you say you know we speak of empire and museums as sort of an othering device and a metric to understand colonial violence um thinking more contemporarily thinking today about the debate in nigeria the debate in britain who, to your mind is the victim and who is the perpetrator in the case of the of the um, bronzes? Is it museums? Is it the viewer, you know, the visitor? Um, who is it? 
Yeah, so let's talk about the complicity of our museums, because I don't think we've quite captured that yet, have we? Because I think if you're listening to this, you might have got got the fact that a big military attack was sort of made on this sort of sacred landscape, that it was a desecration. We haven't talked about the sheer sort of violence in terms of the machine guns and the rocket launchers and the fact that the technologies, including barbed wire and electric lighting, that were to find their way onto the soils of Europe in the First World War were being essentially, um, if you like, tested upon yeah. African bodies in this. And of course, not only in the Benin expedition, but a whole host of these ex- of these events um, in the 1880s and 1890s. But what do, how, surely the museums are just displaying things that are some side effects of that. How are the museums involved? Well, uh, you know, it's a surprise that uh, within weeks of these attacks and the looting that these objects were on display in uh, Berlin and London and Oxford so quickly. And I'd always believed what I'd been told about the Benin attack which was there was some grim logic to the looting because the objects had to be taken in order to sell them off to, right. in order to pay for the cost of this necessary ex, uh, attack. So the attack was framed as a retaliation for an earlier, smaller infraction. And that, as the book says, is, is, a, is a common trick. The idea of the punitive expedition, it's a punishment. Uh, that is simply the logic that we see, you know, later on in you know, Kenya, in Ireland, elsewhere, that this is the logic of uh, reprisal, which is simply a pretext. But more than that, actually the sale, and I looked early on in the research, I looked and looked for the detail of, okay, where do I find this sale? Where, where the, you know, whoever it is, the so the government or the or the Niger Protectorate or, or the Royal Niger Company, somebody has to be sort of selling these things off. And it turns out that there isn't a big sale. There wasn't a big sale. Hmm. About in terms of the formal uh, process, about three hundred of the twelve hundred or more of the the of uh, you know the bronze plaques were certainly uh, displayed in the British Museum. Of those, about 200 were retained and 100 were dispersed, some were sold, some were given away. But all the rest of the objects, we're talking more than 10,000 objects here, they were taken by 150 to 200 sort of soldiers, administrators and sailors and others who were involved in this enormous expedition. And they were kept in, in you, know, you know, some were sold off on the open market at auction or, or, or sort of via dealers. Some indeed were retained in the family, were passed down over generations. And many remain in the hands of the descendants, actually, even uh, today. So the Pitt Rivers uh, uh, you know, actually acquired a number of them. Now, today, I mean, everyone imagines all these things. I think even in your introduction, you, you sort of implied that there's a lot of these are in the British Museum. It turns out there's only 8% sort of now of the, of these, 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 yeah, 10,000 objects are actually in the British Museum. And of those, only a hundred of them are, are on display. So 800 of them are just hidden away in the stores. You know, around the world, 
there were these objects now because the sheer violence of this attack led to a shattering, you know, of this corpus of art to, you know, actually hundreds of other museums, more than, you know, certainly over 150 museums in, in the USA alone, actually more than 40. I think the book says 38, but we've, we've identified you know, the months sort of since uh, 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 the book appeared. And of course, the book offers a, a first attempt as a counter. But actually, actually, oh, where are these things? Right. Uh, I've added to that number because individuals have written to me and said, here's a well-documented object from that, uh, that attack. So anyone, listen to, anyone uh, uh, listening to this, I would encourage you to look at the back of the book and find out how near your nearest, you know, exhibit of uh, one of these objects is, because the question of restitution is one for each of those organisations. It isn't only one, or those are important, it's, it's an important conversation, it isn't only one, that should happen in between the formerly formerly colonised nation and the formerly colonial nation. There's a lot of non-state actors here as well. So the Royal Court exists today. The first returns to the OBA after he was reinstated, OBA Akenzo II, was in 1938. And other objects have, have been uh, over the years also returned. And of course, around the world. I mean, here are the Pitt Rivers. I mean, we're not a nation state. We're a university. Uh, Harvard and Brown and uh, Penn and a host of other Ivy League schools, but you know, University of California and then the city museums from yeah, New York to Detroit, uh, all, you know, all over the place. These things. I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole whole list in the, in the back. So it's a it's a conversation for all of us, and I think this conversation should happen in a different way in different locations. We're at a really interesting moment, though, though, where I think in in the USA, because restitution has been such an important part of the practice, and absolutely rightly you know, a part of the practice of our museums in relation to First Nations under NAGPRA, right. which, which, which is the legal framework for returning ancestral remains, including cultural remains, to First Nations. How is it that Africa and African-Americans, I think, are increasingly asking this as a question, how is it that Africa has not also been a part of that sort of process? So we're in a very interesting time now for, for asking these questions. Um, in terms of who should who, you know, where these objects should be, the first step is for Europeans and Americans to take themselves out of these conversations. There is a conversation in Nigeria about sort of whether all of these objects should, should go to the World Courts, the role of the nation state and the National Museum in uh, Benin. There's also the role of the federal state. Absolutely. I mean, let's have that conversation or more to the point. Let's uh, let's let's see that conversation happen in between Nigerians. It could happen over another 120 years. It could, you know, it could continue. But that's no excuse for those who took these things not to sign over ownership, to see them returned, you know, and to take action. That's an interesting answer, and it um, makes me think of more than what's happening in Nigeria right now, present-day Nigeria. Are there descendants of the royal court from the time of the attack, or um, what's the nature of the call or the discussion, I guess, for return of these objects in Nigeria and in in Benin City itself? Yes, what of course. So, yeah, and so the role of the royal courts and and the uh, the chiefs. Uh, 
uh, and the yeah, I mean the the sort of yeah, lineages which sort of live on mm-hmm. uh, among you know uh, uh, you know among Edo people. Uh, this is this is incredibly important as a part of this, and uh, and uh, and of course a part of the significance for the royal court is the restoration of sovereignty. And of course, there are others within Nigeria for whom questions of sovereignty are live issues. So, you know, these, this is an important conversation in that respect. I think the book, though, as I say, is written from a, from a perspective, uh, of a European curator. It's not my place to involve myself in those conversations, but it is absolutely my place, I think, I feel, to involve myself in the conversations that are now happening across Europe about a new reckoning with the colonial past and a real sense that we have come so far with anti-racism, but we still have a lot of institutional racism. And I think if you look at the commission that's been set up uh, uh, by the Belgians, a sort of truth and reconciliation style commission into the Belgian Congo, if you look at some of the important work that the Germans have been doing about the Herero and the Nama uh, genocides, Mm -hmm. if you look at the work, uh, the announcement from the Netherlands that they wish to return all looted objects, of course, the Macron report with the Sassavoir authorship, which has seen returns, importantly, to to already to, uh, to Madagascar, to Senegal, to Benin, you know, What's happening is that in Europe, we are realizing that racism has a relationship to the, the history of racism. Okay, how to put it? That the racism has a history, that it doesn't come from nowhere. It's not just, it's not sort of, sort of a part of the human condition. It was actively created in this incredibly violent sort of period of time in between the 1880s and the 1930s. A good deal of it was created. Uh, at that time. And so, uh, if you like, a reckoning with empire is how we're going to achieve real progress with anti-racism. And the complicity of the academy is that white supremacy for that time was at the heart of anthropology. We have recognised this in the physical anthropology museums. I mean, it's so ironic that yeah. scientists, after we beat the fascists in the Second World War, one of the first things that happened here in Oxford in the Natural History Museum was the removal of the racist displays of skulls that told the racist lie that there were different species or or, or whatever of their types of human. Um, right next door in the Pitt Rivers, the displays that had been made to tell a story, the same story, but using culture, a s- s- story of cultural supremacy, a s- uh, an idea that you can apply evolutionary ideas to societies and cultures, all those displays actually remained. And that's what I'm saying has failed. We thought that we can ignore it. Exactly the same as Harvard thought they could ignore all the human remains that suddenly people are now talking about at the Peabody. You cannot, there's something happening, there is a generational shift where we can no longer allow these things to be hidden away in the museums and the stores. This is, you know, these are sites of conflict. They're literally filled with the human remains of individuals who died under empire. And also the objects that were taken 
sort of from the cultures in order to try to in order to try to destroy them. So for me, it's us removing ourselves from those conversations. There's a clear desire in Nigeria for the, for the return. Of course, there are different sorts of points of view, but the founding of the Legacy Restoration Trust which is an incredibly important organization that really works to bring together each of the local agents uh, sort of in Nigeria, each of the actors from the royal court to, to the nation state to the governor. And I think especially the election, you know, of the governor for another four years mm-hmm. in autumn 2020 uh, with a, a with a firm, a firm commitment to returns, a commitment to the museum project, with the architect Sir David Adjay. Uh, yeah, it's all moving. We're moving into a new phase of, of all these conversations. But this, this does not mean, as we hear from some colleagues, that we should have the, the, the sort of a conditional loan, short-term loan or long-term loan of these objects back. This is about the unconditional and the permanent uh, return of these artworks which were taken. You can't loan back what you stole. No, I think that's really the power of your book and why it should appeal to a broad audience. You give us the language and you give us the framework to think about not only the difference between cultural and material violence, but also how the failure of museums to accurately represent, to recognize these colonial legacies and to prevent, present provenance and these things without context is really part of not only the colonial project, but a technology of states and um, is intentional, whether it was intended or not, if you know what I mean, just thinking as a, a state purist. Um, and it sort of leads me to my last question. I want to start to wrap up. You, you know, graciously spent so much time with us. Um, restitution, what does that mean um, in the Nigerian setting? And what does that mean, you know, for someone who curates the Pitt Museum? Is restitution um, the end goal or just the first step in a longer process? Yeah. So I've said already, or I've aimed to make the case that this isn't some sort of distraction, that culture really matters. And those of us that work in museums, that appreciate art, who love museums and arts, you know, any anyone who's, who's ever enjoyed a visit to a museum surely knows that these things matter. There's a link here with the longstanding restitution movement, which is an African movement that starts at least in the 1930s, if not earlier. There's a link there in between the restoration movement and the fallism movement. So the fallism movement, the call to remove statues uh, were the image of of colonialist power and of white supremacy is something we see in Algeria in the 1960s. We see it in, in a whole host of other locations. We see it also, of course, in the American South around the the issue of the images of the Confederacy. We see it here in Oxford in the image of of Cecil Rhodes. And we saw it in the Bristol example I mentioned earlier of Edward Colston. And what's important about all of those is they are built in a surprisingly narrow time frame in between the 1880s and 1930s. This is proto-fascism writing its world vision into the cultural environment. It's incredibly hard, once you've erected a statue that tells a certain story, to remove that statue. It's incredibly hard when you have made a display of art that is there to tell and to and to and to commemorate and to make endure anti-black violence 
it's incredibly hard to take that apart. That's what, you know, they knew what they were doing at this time. And it's a distinct phenomenon. So we have to learn from those African-led movements that art and culture has been put to work to make violence last and to make, you know, a white supremacist vision of the world last. So for us, that's why it's so important. That's what restitution means. It, of course, links to other questions over reparations, over remembrance. There's a sense in which our world culture museums have in part become sites of conscience, sites where we remember empire, as well, though, as the fact that we've never needed something like a world culture museum more than we do today. We need these spaces as, you know, as the public spaces of anthropology and archaeology to celebrate art and culture and thought and creativity, you know, outside of a Eurocentric lens. But that doesn't mean that we need to hold on to objects that were taken with violence where the demand is made. So, so the book is a, is a call for a case-by-case approach, such as we do already for Holocaust spoliation, for the return of ancestral remains. We need to do that for cultural remains as well. We need to foreground the human. We need to care for people more than we care for things. So that's what restitution means for me. I think we've, you know, I love museums. I love world culture museums. I, I, I have a belief in anthropology and archaeology. But look at how anthropology has changed in the past 120 years. How come the public spaces that anthropology has have not kept up in terms of pace? So as we, you know, I would compare it to the renaming of Crover Hall at uh, Berkeley, the it's a building that is also a museum in part, that was named after to commemorate, you know, a 19th century, early 20th century anthropologist, who we understand now is not the person that needs to be remembered. This is a museum built on 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 stolen land. So stolen land, stolen art. We need to understand these uh, as ongoing sort of parts of a worldview which has no place in our discipline today and no place in our museums. And so I guess it's a hopeful, it's a hopeful thing to end on. You know, it's a hope. I hope it's a hopeful book. I mean, it is. There's some sort of truth telling to be done. We need to be incredibly careful when we tell the history of violence, and there's a lot of violence in the book, that that violence is not reinscribed, that it's not sort of made worse. But we definitely need to recognise, and this is ultimately what the book's about, that our museums can be hurtful. They were built as weapons in part. They were co-opted by the right and by racism. And it's our job today to root that out and to dismantle, to repurpose and to to reimagine our institutions. I really appreciate your answer. I think it is a hopeful book. I found, for me, who doesn't study museums per se, but understands them as a as a tactic of power, as you've noted, a, a weapon of empire, for lack of a better phrase, that it gives us the language, it provides a framework to understand um, colonial looting and the, the structure of museums across cases. Of course, we're thinking of Namibia and the return of human remains there, but people come first, and I appreciate your comment and you know i hope this decolonial framework of cultural restitution gains traction and you know this is my final question for you for listeners who want to learn more who want to dig deeper you know not only about colonial violence but about cultural restitution and the benin bronzes do you have any Mm. 
books or podcasts or videos, anything you might recommend for listeners keen on understanding museums as sites of violence, but also sites of restitution? Of course, yes. So I think it's incredibly important to foreground the many African voices who are leading this uh, debate. So, you know, the notion of a museum is being reimagined across the African continent from Cape Town and the, the, uh, the District 6 Museum, which is a museum that comes to terms with the legacies of apartheid, to uh, Dakar with the, you know, with the new museum of black uh, civilizations, uh, to indeed uh, Egypt. And it's important for us not to repeat this racist distinction between sub-Saharan Africa and sort of North Africa. I mean, this is a question for Africa as a continent. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, reading African authors, there's a, there's a lot who are cited in the book. Uh, and you'll find a lot on social media. If you go to my website, there is, uh, you know, some of my other writings, you know, reference a lot of these people. There was actually most recently a piece in, in British arts studies, which I wrote, but which the best bit of it are the 10 responses from my colleagues, uh, in Africa. There was some North American, uh, in, uh, also responses there as well. Fundamentally, what we're learning from that work is that the decolonization word or that framing is incredibly important in some circumstances, in the circumstances of uh, settler colonialism. But in these uh, societies and concepts and artworks, which are, have been subject not to not really to settler colonialism, but to extractive and to militarist colonialism, then maybe what we need isn't only decolonization, it's the unfinished work of anti-colonialism and of anti-racism. I think that's that's really what we learn. Um, so, yeah, you know, read African scholars about African museums and African art. Um, Dan, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to learn from you. Absolutely. Really good to talk. Thanks so much. Thank you. 